The past decade has seen the mobility sector undergo rapid change and transformation towards a more sustainable and efficient paradigm. However, the outbreak of the coronavirus has thrown a spanner in the works. Both the demand and supply-side disruptions have resulted in mobility ecosystem players scrambling to improve their operational and financial impacts while minimizing the impact on workers. What does this mean for the future of mobility? Today, we attempt to navigate through the uncertainty of a post-coronavirus future of mobility. <laughs> Welcome to the inaugural episode of our Future of Mobility series, bringing you the top voices from the sector. Decision makers, innovators and shapers pushing the envelope on future ideas for transportation and beyond. I'm your host Dishraf and today we are honoured to have Klaus Entermann and Scott Corwin joining us remotely. Klaus is the Senior Advisor at Deloitte for the Global Future of Mobility and has over 40 years of experience in the auto finance and mobility industry. Klaus also transformed the captive finance organization of a major German automotive OEM from a classic autobank to an integrated financial and mobility services provider. Joining us today as well, we have Scott, who is the Managing Director of Strategy and Business Transformation at Deloitte Consulting. He is also Deloitte's global leader for the future of mobility practice. Klaus and Scott, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. I would like to first start off with the big picture. Over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a convergence of emerging technologies and new demographic trends that have resulted in tremendous change in the mobility ecosystem. Now, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen the mobility sector getting affected severely and paradigms shift rapidly on both the demand and supply sides. Could each of you share how these developments will affect the future of mobility in the new decade? Perhaps we can start with you, Klaus? Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, with COVID-19, I think our system of values will also be tested, especially in the area of safety of employees and also safety of customers. Especially when you think about new forms of mobility and also traditional forms of mobility, public transportation, how to ensure that also in the future we have a public transportation system which is safe and gives people also the opportunity to travel without challenges. We will see a lot of challenges ahead of us, but on the other side, also a lot of opportunities coming out of such a pandemic using new technologies. So on the one side, we are scared. On the other side, we see opportunities going forward. All right, Scott, building on top of what Klaus just mentioned, I wanted to hear from you as well. What are your outlooks regarding the future of mobility in the post-coronavirus times? Yeah, so thank you very much for inviting us to join you today. We're Klaus and I have been having this dialogue for uh, a long time, and we're delighted to be able to do this together with uh, our colleagues and friends in Singapore. You know, it's really interesting. I'd like to take a step backwards for a minute and just create some context, because I think it, we're at a really interesting moment. And if you think about what's happened over the last decade, we have seen an incredible amount of innovation that has kind of challenged traditional 
industry structures and dynamics. So you think about the global automotive industry, you think about fixed route transportation systems. I mean, we've seen the sort of rapid rise of shared mobility in the form of on-demand shuttle buses, ride hailing companies, bike sharing, scooter companies. We've seen pretty significant advances in autonomous technologies, in the movement of goods and the movement of people. So, and there's been an incredible infusion of capital that has undergirded that. And the, the innovators and the visionaries that have been leading that have not been really focused on how do I incrementally adapt the existing sort of transportation system, but how do I profoundly change it? And I think that the moment we're at right now is, I mean, that it seemed like it was on a pathway and it seemed almost like the tectonic plates undergirding transportation were shifting and we would reach a kind of new fault line, if you will, in the future. And I think the question is, will that continue? Will it slow down? Will it take a different pathway? Where is it all headed? And what's interesting is that to Klaus's point on the consumption patterns, people have been voting with their feet and opting for these new forms in, in various ways. And it's been disruptive to some of the traditional players. On the other side, the traditional players have been adapting their systems to this. So the multi-trillion dollar question for me, which we will not answer in this session or probably for some time, is will we have very significant government funding to create a lifeline to the airlines, to the shipping industry, to the automotive industry, to mass transit, to keep employees employed and productive and to keep these systems running? And or will we begin to sort of invest some of that money into where the future wants to take us, which offers an incredible promise of kind of faster, safer, cleaner, cheaper, more inclusive, more accessible mobility. And, you know, we at Deloitte have been on the forefront of pushing this movement of, of trying to see the adoption of some of the positive opportunities here. And I guess we continue to hope that that will continue to happen. But there are some really big questions about what the pathway looks like forward. So I just thought it's kind of important up front maybe to kind of set that context. Now, do both of you foresee the COVID-19 pandemic having a long-lasting impact on the transformation of current mobility models, or do you think that the impact will only be short-lived? Scott, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, well, I, I guess sort of my comments I just made are kind of a, a prelude to that because I didn't really talk about the COVID impact. The firm has actually done some really interesting work on scenarios where we're trying to posit what could be the futures that emerge. And one is the severity of the pandemic. And then the second is around, will countries try to respond individually or more collaboratively? And you can see a range of scenarios from this may pass relatively quickly. Maybe the things that you're seeing in Singapore and China where things are in, in Korea are starting to open up again. Maybe that is the pathway. Hopefully we don't see a second wave of the pandemic. Could it be that in fact, we have a, a pretty severe second wave and it impacts kind of the recovery? 
So I don't think any of us really know what the recovery is and the severity of the pandemic. And it's a one-two punch, right? One is, you know, horribly and tragically, lots of people are being taken ill and, and passing away. And then the second is, we've never shut down a global economy to the level that we're doing right now. And the length of time that that goes on will have an effect on, is it a V-curve recovery, a U-curve, a trough? What does it look like? And, and I think that the answer to that question has profound implications for what it means for what the form of mobility is on the other side. Klaus lived through the 2009 financial crisis, as did I. So, you know, Klaus, maybe you want to sort of reflect on that in your perspective on all of this. Klaus, do you have anything else to add? First of all, I think what we also need to see and what will come now, even if we would have a, an effect that the ban will be lifted soon. But what would it mean? And getting out of the pandemic right now, what would it mean for us and the people? So we will get used to wear masks for several months, I assume. I do not know it right now. I think the measures will be that people will walk and get used to walking outside wearing masks, which is quite normal right now in the Asian uh, countries. And it's a precautionary measure. People are getting used to have more distance. And this will have certain impacts because people behave different. Though I think if we look at people, customers, employees, employers need to make sure that people can work in factories and in offices again with bigger distances. So from an organizational part, this will create a lot of impacts. I think it's necessary. It's also a big challenge for the different companies as well. And if we look at the industry, especially the auto industry and getting out of this right now, Most of the companies are in cost-cutting mode and saving mode, which is essential because they have to protect the cash position and to make sure to get through a crisis. And this crisis is bigger than the financial crisis, what we have seen in 2009. The COVID-19 situation, as I've mentioned earlier, has seen companies in the mobility ecosystem suffering from changing demand patterns and disturbance in global supply chain. This is especially true of automotive companies who are usually dependent on highly fragmented and globalized supply chains. What areas do you think companies in the mobility ecosystem should focus on in order to tide through these trying times? First learnings out of China, you see a lot of changes and opportunities. And what we see clearly is that the digital arena and digital services and digital processes will be the winner of this pandemic. And just as a lot of experience from the company we have in China, they changed their processes to 100% digital. They were able to create processes together with the licenses offices in Beijing and other cities to register cars, 100% digital. So you can get into business mode again, but you need to invest. What I want to say is on the one side, you need as an automotive industry and other industry, reserve and make sure your cash position is safe. On the other side, you need to continue to invest. And especially now in the auto industry as well, you need to look from the outside in, from your customer, and how to make sure that customers are getting back or how do you get them back to dealerships? How are you integrating digital processes to make this happen? And the whole finance process. 
And I think there are the opportunities and the examples where you can really, if you continue to invest in the right uh, services, you can grow the business again and you can make sure that your position is, is even better. The other thing is, if you look at supply chain, extremely important for the auto industry, you need to make sure that the supply chain stays in existence. That means you need to perhaps think about new cooperation, new consolidation in the industry. The auto industry needs to be prepared to take over the one or the other supply company just to make sure the supply is continuing. And the other part is the future invests, Scott just mentioned. We have been on a very aggressive pace from the mobility industry getting into autonomous services. The mobility industry is cutting back there as well. The auto industry is cutting back. So we will see a setback in certain things and a slowdown in certain processes as well. And I hope that we can overcome this and get back to a mode where we are able to continue to invest in new services and new opportunities. Uh, looking at the mobility overall, I see a lot of changes in the mobility service provider and new opportunities. Just looking at the scooters and bikes, they will see a comeback. So I think it's a very different picture and we have to see who is able to really generate the best out of this. Great. Thanks, Klaus. Scott, I wanted to build on top of what Klaus just mentioned. You've recently collaborated on a World Economic Forum paper for the transformation of passenger and goods mobility. In it, you mentioned that support must be coordinated between public and private sector leaders to accelerate the transformation of existing mobility models. What role do you think the public sector should play to best support and orchestrate the mobility ecosystem to respond to the impact of COVID-19? So the background to the work, the study we just released with the World Economic Forum on activating seamless integrated mobility has been the product of a three-year effort with the forum. And this past year, we decided to take a look at 10 cities that we thought were leading cities in terms of activating seamless integrated mobility. And we came away with sort of a set of observations. They're very different cities, by the way. So Singapore was one, and, and LA was another, and Lisbon, and uh, London, and Tel Aviv, and Tokyo, and Detroit, Ann Arbor, and Windsor. And the reason we did this is that all of these cities and cities around the globe and regions have been really thinking about how do they adopt these innovations and in mobility. But at the same time, they're confronting the challenge of rising population growth, more densely populated environments, insufficient capital to modernize infrastructure and their transportation systems, a shift in tax revenues away from personal car usage and ownership, as well as sort of the sustainability impacts in terms of climate. And so we thought it would be helpful to kind of highlight what insights you could get from these cities. And what we found is that there were really sort of, we posited things as sort of A or B, but in fact, they're really false choices. So on the, the public versus private question you're asking, should this be led by the public sector or should it be led by the private sector? And in fact, that's really a false choice. The public sector needs to sort of set a vision and to work on the values of their community and say, this is what we want to prioritize. So if it's about accessibility and inclusivity, how do we create open access? How do we create 
greater inclusion. With the private players investing their capital in the innovation, they're looking for markets. And you need to give them incentives and they'll naturally go where there's dense population and where they can get scale and utilization of their services. So the trick is how do you find a, a balance between them? And we saw in some cities very tight upfront regulation that sort of stipulates exactly how these services should function. And in other cities, almost let a thousand flowers bloom and let them get going and then regulate once there was experience with them. What we're talking about is how do you sort of orchestra conductor across all these different modes that are public and private. The other big question that exists is there are sort of three or four other design choices that I think are pretty interesting. One is, do you optimize the journey of an individual or do you optimize the movement of three million people in a city or eight million people in a city and try to find a way to affect a better outcome? I think when you think about COVID and the impact of the COVID-19, the question is, how do we get these stakeholders to continue to work together to affect better outcomes? The population of cities is not likely to decline anytime soon. But if people are fearful, not about just physical safety, but their own safety in terms of you know, viruses and germs, then they're not going to want to use crowded shared forms of mobility. They may not even want to use bike sharing where someone's hands have been on the handlebars or, or scooters. So, you know, are we going to create and take advantage of maybe new technologies on sanitizing these things, having people wear disposable gloves, right? I mean, there are new patterns and behaviors that are going to come around. Certainly getting people on the demand side to use active forms of mobility outdoors in the fresh air is a much healthier way to go. And you see the air quality that's improving around the globe today because of less cars out there. So the question is, how do we kind of address the natural fears that people have? Or are they going to go back to private owned cars because they control their environments and they can sort of manage them with all of the negative externalities, particularly in crowded urban areas that exist? So I think the study was intended to just kind of give a set of ideas for cities and regions around the globe and hope that it catalyzes a movement towards a sort of much more orchestrated, seamless, integrated mobility system in cities. And I, I think we will see that for sure. And Klaus, I wanted to expand on what Scott just mentioned. What strategic advice would you give mobility business leaders who are looking to change their operating models and diversify in order to ensure business continuity? Will we start seeing organizations forging new operating models or will we see shifts in the portfolios of services? Invest in digital services for your customers, for your dealers, and make sure that you combine this with the system of financing overall to have a fully-fledged customer service business to make sure that the sales and financing processes are working. Continue to invest in digital products and services and continue in the so-called connected, shared, electric, and also autonomous future. I think it's tight. It's right now difficult to continue with all, all the investments, but the key parts need to continue. I think what's really interesting is I, I 
helped one of the OEMs put their viability plan together in 2009. And essentially the playbook, and Klaus can correct me on this, was to cut a lot of sort of fixed structural costs to lower the break-even so that you could be profitable at lower volumes. And what we've hit in the last couple of years is probably sort of peak volumes in the automotive industry. For sure, in the, you know, in Western Europe and the United States, it's a replacement market. The growth is in, in Asia. And fundamental economics of those value chains have shifted. And if we move exactly where Klaus is sort of suggesting the future is, which is a one around shared and autonomous, the world will need fewer actual physical units of cars to move more people. And so those economic shift, which means that the manufacturers and the value chain has to, over some period of time and maybe sooner, really develop service-based models where the, the metric is more um, miles traveled or trips provided for number of passengers than it is in number of units sold. And in parallel, I do think we have to think about sustainability and environmental impact, just like the hygiene stuff we're talking about or sanitization, right? These impose additional operating costs that have to get built into these models. And the question is, for how long will passengers and consumers be willing to pay the incremental upcharge or cost of these things? It can't just be absorbed by the manufacturer or the operator at lower profit margins, which are already pretty razor thin. So I, I just think it's important to add that consideration to, you know, I think the really good points that Klaus was just making. As we all know it, COVID-19 is fundamentally a people-based crisis. Human capital is an integral part of every company, no less in the mobility sector, whereby a significant percentage of jobs cannot be performed remotely. What could companies in the mobility sector do, in your opinion, to protect its people and boost morale? What are your thoughts on this, Klaus? Yeah, looking at bus drivers, looking at taxi drivers, looking at the ride-hailing drivers, that's a difficult job, not only based now if you look at uh, the challenge of income and low revenue, it's more a question of safety and health and uh, how to deal with this. And mobility service provider companies, they need to make sure that their people are protected as much as possible. I just read an article about a bus driver in Detroit killed by the virus and that therefore you need to have systems protect them, close the front door, have plexiglass. Uh, you also have to say as a bus company, perhaps no tickets anymore and continue the service because I think human first, it's the key part. And then you have to see what can you do with sanitization and just make sure that employees are protected and have the space. And Scott, do you have anything else to add? Well, this future work question was a big question before the pandemic. What we were seeing is the rise of automation and literally millions of people who are employed in the industries around transportation and mobility. And logically, if you're older and you know you were a truck driver or you were in some of these jobs that might be automated, there was natural resistance for that to happen. What we've seen in this pandemic is Boy, wouldn't we have wished that we had sort of 
autonomous enabled trucks for supply chains so that, I mean, we, there were reports that owner-occupied truck drivers did not want to go to the West Coast at the early point of the outbreaks, understandably, because they would go out there with an empty load. They would only have a partial load because keep in mind, the pandemic hit China a while ago in the East and therefore the ships coming in weren't as full. The economics weren't so attractive with the risk of potentially catching the virus. And imagine now in terms of delivery of medical supplies to hospitals, if we had drone technologies that were advanced. So we're seeing the power of what this technology could do, the potential of it in the middle of this, and particularly in very specific cases, you kind of wish we were more advanced, but inevitably we're going to have a transition of the workforce. And the hard part of this, and our team has spent a lot of time sort of exploring this, is we don't really know what the jobs of the future will be. We have a very good handle on the jobs we're going to lose and the impact that it might be, and that it's, it's real. And we can't displace, you know, millions of Uber drivers that, this is sort of they're earning a living that puts them on the edge of the middle class and for their families. These are important gateway sort of rising aspirations. And so I think we cannot sort of talk about the future of mobility if we don't really figure out what is the transition of the workforce. Now you throw in the pandemic and the germ part of this. And we have to create safe environments that are above and beyond anything we ever had before. And it's got to be factored in and we have to be prepared for it. And that's one of the things that hopefully is one of the takeaways from this is preparation so that we never get caught the way we all got caught this time. Scott, you brought up an interesting point. While the pandemic has significant impact on business operations, it also presents an opportunity for companies to solidify their positions in the market and improve their services. How then can organizations use this downtime to develop a competitive advantage down the line on their path to recovery post-COVID-19? Will we start seeing technology roadmaps being accelerated? I, I think the first thing you're going to see is that the major players or, or incumbents that exist today are going to try to stabilize the situation. And that's the responsibility of management. They have to do that. That's their responsibility to the shareholders. And it's also the responsibility of government to keep the economy moving and keep people employed. And so there will be sort of massive infusions of public funding to at least create that kind of lifeline. The question is, do we reinvent along the way do we, in fact, from a societal perspective, say, you know what, what existed in the past or some sort of going back there is understandable and natural? The question is, can we also imagine a future where we can begin to accelerate the adoption of some of this innovation? It's not all technological. It's actually, it's a mindset, it's governance, it's regulatory, it's coming up with new ways to monetize the value that's being created. And it is about how do we build ecosystems of players that have not naturally come together and kind of build movements around this. And this will happen probably at a community by community or city by city level. I don't think it'll be national and I'm not sure that it'll ever be global, but I think we'll see incredible examples. And so 
out of every crisis, reinvention has occurred. That was true in 2009 in the financial crisis. I lived through it, as did many others in New York when 9-11 happened. It happened, you know, with so many other sort of events. So I am optimistic, actually, that if we can get through the near term, the longer term could be quite promising. And it is, a, just look at what we're doing right now. We're talking to you by Zoom, you're recording this. We've all gotten used to sort of this electronic means of working. That may mean that there's less travel face-to-face, right? And yet there's still a lot of connectivity and a lot of person-to-person contact. So new modes of working for sure are gonna come. Now to wrap things up, as we shift from response to recovery, do you foresee economic activity in the mobility sector rebounding swiftly to pre-outbreak levels? The unknowns for me is what happens to the billions of dollars of investment that has happened over the last several years in innovation. Does the sort of early stage VC funding slow down a bit where, you know, is this the equivalent of the Dutch tulip bulb burst in terms of valuations for a number of these kind of startups? Does the sort of frothy nature of optimism around them change? Will there be a kind of new sober reality on the monetization of these businesses and the time frames? Do the time horizons change where people were willing to invest kind of on the longer term because they saw such a incredible payoff when you think about the IPOs of some of the big mobility companies in the last couple of years? On the other hand, I do think that you see places that are very leading edge and your home in Singapore is certainly one of them where they've thought about all of this from a sustainability lens, have thought about it from a quality of life lens, they've thought about it from a system of systems thing and have really attacked this on multiple fronts. It's hard for me to imagine short of the government funding drying up and uh, a country like Singapore isn't going to continue to push or that the movement to electrification in some countries like you see in parts of China, or the movement to advanced digitization the way that Klaus has talked about. So it may be that the historic quote unquote centers of this innovation may really profoundly shift. And it may be that it's in the East. And some of that may be that the ability of governments to enact things can happen a little easier than kind of in traditional sort of messier democracies. I think it will continue. And I think it just, it may slow down a bit. It may take a very different form once things stabilize. The near term is all going to be about resuscitation and stabilization. And, and quite frankly, as it ought to be, the question is what happens a couple of years out, whether we get to some sort of stable environment. And then, you know, what does that sort of inflection point look like? And Klaus, expanding on what I just asked earlier, What strategies do you have to share with mobility ecosystem players who are starting to resume pre-outbreak activities? We always have to think in two dimensions. One is mobility of people and the other thing is mobility of goods. And mobility of goods means that uh, we all have a system in place and an infrastructure where we get the material and the goods we need to have. And uh, that's also tested right now. Mobility is part of the freedom everybody wants to have. Mobility is the possibility 
to go to places, to go to other places. I think, therefore, people want to be mobile. People need, for certain instances, or in a lot of cases, need to be mobile to get to work, to the workplaces, that's clear. But on the other side, mobility and the possibility to travel, that's something which is important. It's freedom. But also we have to recognize this does not come for free or so easy anymore. So we have to think about sustainability and we have to think about how to make this happen. I just want to build on one point that Klaus made, which is mobility is freedom, but mobility also, there's a really interesting study that came out of MIT that demonstrated that people who have access to physical mobility, digital access to networks, that their household wealth rises. And so if we want to rebuild our economies, we actually have to make mobility much more inclusive and accessible broadly. And you're absolutely right that we're moving to a world where we're expecting goods to go from one end of a value chain to the other in nanoseconds. And to, and we need to do all of that in a sustainable way. So you're going to see in parallel this sort of decarbonization of transportation. And the question is, how do we affect this transition? So it could be abrupt. It could be led by market forces, it could be led by natural forces, it could be led by any number of things. What I hope comes out of this is that we're able to take a step back and really reflect and think about collectively, where do we want this to head? What is the North Star? And how do we bring a really massive diverse set of stakeholders together to create with that future mobility? The good news is there is no shortage of dialogue going on on this. We see it in all corners of the world. So I fully expect there will be a very robust exchange on these topics and hopefully we move forward. Well, that has certainly been an insightful session. Thank you so much, Klaus and Scott, for joining us on today's podcast. And that's it for today's episode of our Future Mobility series. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered, you can send us an email at cpodcast at Deloitte.com. That's spelled S-E-A podcast at Deloitte.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I am Dishoff, and until next time. <laughs>